Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is the Crash MotoGP podcast, episode 19 for our Aragon Grand Prix preview. I'm your host, Harry Benjamin, alongside me, Keith Hewin and Pete McLaren. And on today's show, well, I've already given it away, really. We are going to be looking ahead to what may lie in store for us with MotoGP back in Aragon this weekend. We'll also be discussing a little bit on track limits. I can almost hear the cheers from Pete and Keith. Uh, but it's caused uproar once again, uh, this time in the world, Superbikes at Manly Core. But as we all know, it's a repetitive issue throughout MotoGP and motorsport in general. Uh, plus, I dread to think of the season where Maverick Vinales isn't in the headlines every Every week, what on earth would we talk about? Because, of course, after his debut on the Aprilia at Misano for a private test, the team has announced Maverick is back for Aragon and will be racing with the team this weekend. So let's get straight into it, shall we, team? Uh, Keith Vinales, good run out in the uh, Aprilia at Misano. Revealed his lap time, a 133.0. Nothing but positive feedback, which you'd hope to expect anyway, but uh, so good that they decided to bump off Lorenzo Salvadori and uh, in comes Maverick back on the bike. Imagine how Andrea Iannone feels at this point in time. He's finally, definitely not coming back to Aprilia. Um, I mean, the positives. The positives are damn good times that, that Vinales has done on a brand new bike to him. So I think we've got to take our hats off there. But don't you feel that we've been here so many times before with Vinales in testing in any of those situations where pre-season he always looks really, really quick and like he's going to have a great year. And I just get the feeling this time, I had to stifle a bit of a yawn in your intro there with that, not because of you, but because of the subject, in as much as we are questioning straight away, is he going to do it? Is he going to come back and do it? I don't think it'd be any, I think to a man, I, don't, I think... To see him perform and to see him perform to his true potential on an Aprilia at Aragon, where he goes quite good anyway, um, would be a great thing for everybody, for the sport, for him, for Aprilia particularly. Um, and I hope he does. But excuse me for being the eternal cynic that I've always been in, that, that, that we've seen Maverick perform. His first few rides on the Yamaha um, in testing and then at the beginning of the year in races were really, really good. And then it seems to descend into this sort of, incredible head war that he has with himself and I'm hoping that the change of garage and the change of um, personnel will just lift him enough to keep that momentum going in the second half of the season there's no there's you know no one's going to give him any quarter you know it's just, he's got the same problems on the Aprilia as he's got with the Yamaha 
It's the com- competition. It's everyone around him. It's the it's the situation that he finds himself in that he's going to be in again on a different motorbike. You know, is he a brilliant better than Yamaha? No, <laughs> definitely isn't. Not on present form that we've seen so far. Is the Aprilia improving? Have they made a step? Yes, they have, and a massive one, of course. You know, Aleish last time out was brilliant. First podium for him in what, in the Premier class, something like seven years. When was the last time an Aprilia had a, a podium in the Premier class? We've got to go back to probably, I mean, I know I should have looked it up, but I haven't. But it'll be someone like Jeremy McWilliams, won't it? I would think. I mean, Pete's nodding, so I might be near to being right. Um, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not great on stats. That's why we rely on everyone else. But will he do it? I hope he does. Um, it's going to be tough at Aragon. Aragon is not an easy racetrack. Um, the Aprilia is fast enough. It looked really stable. Last time out, I was really impressed with how stable it was. And I think it will go well at Aragon this year. Um, will Vinales be in the top half dozen? If he does, it will be something like a miracle, I think, is, is my thinking. Yeah, well, lots of questions have uh, come in from uh, our beloved listeners on this. You've answered uh, Babes one already. He he's thinking exactly the same thing as you. Is it not something we've just seen before? Hoping it might be a different story this time around for Maverick. Uh, Callum's asked though, do you think Vinales has just seen something in Aprilia that everyone else has missed? Because I know we they're an improving bike, but are they about to make this gigantic step forward in their development of the bike that will bring them suddenly to becoming regular front-running contenders? There are no gigantic steps. This is incremental. We are in a prototype situation here with all of these bikes. There will be some gigantic steps come 2022 when the freeze, the technical freeze is lifted. Mm. Um, but there are no gigantic steps. My worry is, is whether the Aprilia improves with the current motorbikes, but they're two-year-old motors now, really, basically, in technical terms. Um, so Aprilia is only really catching up to what was, was already two years old, if you like. Um, so it's incremental. It really is. I mean, it's finding those tiny, tiny little details. Again, we will talk about World Superbike in a minute because we can't not. And <laughs> watching how those guys went through getting – tiny details right from race to race obviously they have three races one on saturday and two on sunday although bizarrely they don't call one of them a race on sunday i don't know what that's all about but anyway it's another thing we can moan about but um it it just seems to me that that, that these incremental changes now maverick vinales seems to go through the whole data log um to try and find what he needs sometimes some weekends i think that you know, every man in Yamaha is running around in a bloody great circle trying to work out exactly what they need to give to Maverick Vinales to get him to perform. You know, from day to day, it could be completely different for Maverick. You will find him qualified, not qualified particularly well, but go really well in free practice. And then it sort of descends into chaos where they can't quite work out why he's not able to hook the rear up or make it work in the way he wants it to do. Um, these are the same problems he's going to have in Aprilia. There's, there's, change manufacture isn't going to make a difference, I don't believe, to the to the problems he still has to sort out uh, throughout every weekend. Hope he does. I hope it works for Aprilia and for him. It'd be brilliant. It'd be, it'd be the biggest story of the year if he dumps Yamaha, goes to Aprilia, and then ends up on the podium this weekend. If that happens, well, oh. I'm just thinking of what I can publicly eat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough, I don't think, don't, for that. 
I'll <laughs> well, get a few Pete, hits online. Yeah, 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 it would do. Pete, let's bring you in the, on this as well, because I was reading, I think, one of your articles on, on Crash.net about this. And, you know, the, the positive uh, feedback coming out of the initial private test in Misano was, was perhaps, you know, it wasn't a given, given that he spent most of his career with this inline engine. Maverick might have not had such a good feeling straight away on the Aprilia, a very different kind of bike. But this positive feedback, the good timings in the testing that he's revealed, it's all looking fairly good. Yeah, as you say, Harry, he, he was, his words, nervous about trying the V4 engine. As you say, the Suzuki and the Yamaha before had the inline force. So he wasn't quite sure how that might feel. Would he get on with it? But he said he was pleasantly surprised by it. Um, the Aprilia technical director, Romano Abbasiano, was saying similar sort of things. There'd been no major issues. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's encouraging full stop that he wants to race at the, the earliest possible time, isn't it? Because I think given the season that he's had at Yamaha, these, these sort of highs and lows, you know, emotionally, if you like, that, that maybe he might have been discouraged against, you know, wanting to come back. So the fact that this is basically the, the first chance he's got to get on and race the bike and he's taken it. So that shows that he's still got, you know, the enthusiasm for this new project. So I think that hopefully is a good sign in itself. For, for the things that Keith was talking about that, you know, he's got a, he, and he was also saying in fairness to him that he knows he needs to make this, he knows he needs to make this chance work. You know, he, he's got to get, he's got to get it right at the pretty, he's got to, you know, drive forward and push this project forward. And, you know, he's joining a pretty at, at a great time. You know, the bike's just been on the podium. Alesha was what, four seconds off victory on 20 laps, what 0.2 of a second a lap, you know, it's, it, it couldn't be a better time. And as you guys have been saying, imagine if he goes and does something special on this bike. I mean, we know already this year it's been too sporadic, you know, but there's been times, Qatar and Assen, where on the same bike he's been as quick as, as Fabio Quattararo. You know, so we know he can do it. It's just that he can, he's not able to do it weekend in, weekend out. Things, as Keith was saying, things just just seem to, you know, some small thing will happen and it just derails his whole weekend. But he's got the speed there. And who knows, you know, there is the chance to make this history for Aprilia. You know, they've got the podium now. They've never won a race in the Premier class. And, and who knows, you know, if he goes on and does that, it could be a, a massive shock. We haven't seen a, a top rider, a rider, you know, he's a nine-time winner. We saw Ian only join Aprilia, but Ian only had one win and, you know, masses of talent. But, he, you know, he had, didn't have the track record that, say, that, that Maverick had. Maverick's only 26 still as well. He's relatively young. So, you know, we haven't seen this kind of big move, I, I guess, maybe, I mean, Caparossi, when he went from Ducati to Suzuki, but he was a lot later in his career. But then you'd have to go back to Rossi, really, from, from Honda to Yamaha. And, you know, nobody, the Yamaha had only taken one podium the previous year. So in that sense, you know, the Aprilia has now taken one podium. It's not too far apart. And it would just be, you know, it's another great twist for the season. It's another story that, you know, a top line rider joins what, what is on paper, the the lowest of the manufacturers and, and let's see what he can do. And, you know, will the big question is, as Keith has been saying, will this change of atmosphere, you know, revive Maverick and really reset him and bring him back to, to kind of the guy he was at Suzuki, where in his second year at Suzuki, he was consistent. He was, you know, up there every week, pretty much in the top six. He won a race and everything else. So that's what we'll all be looking for. He didn't want to leave Suzuki, did he? He took a long time to go to Yamaha. The Yamaha move was the right move, but he did not want to go from Suzuki. There was something about that sort of care that Davide Brivio and that team gave him in Suzuki that really made him reluctant to take the Yamaha deal. It's funny, you know, I've probably been in the past a little bit harsh over the situation at Aprilia, 
bear in mind that I have no uh, hand in that camp at all. Um, but you take on their second riders always seem to come off really second best. They never seem to quite, you know, come out of it with any kind of decent deal at the end of the day. Everyone that we've had, the fact that we've had a couple of Brits in there, of course, we, we're slightly more sensitive to perhaps here in Britain. But seeing the Vizioso line up for photographs with the team this week to congratulate them on the podium gives me great heart. That almost suddenly has a, it has the Ducati Italian kind of feel about it, the family kind of feel. Now, if that is how that team actually is and not as harsh as it has appeared to be in the past, that will be a positive for Maverick Vinales. That will assist him mentally with what he's doing and, and how he will perform. Because everything, everything once you get to this stage is north of the eyebrows. There's, you know, all of these guys can ride a motorbike the best in the world. There's, you know, that's it. Everything else is done, you know, cerebrally. It's it's done automatically. It's something that, you know, they work on it. Their, their psychology is very important. And that's where Mavericks is perhaps a little weak. Now, if it's a, a team that has a team spirit similar to the Suzuki team, um, and I I and many others have been wrong about how harsh it always appears that Aprilia treat their number two, if you like. Not that I'm considering Maverick Vinales being number two. We'll get to Alasia in a minute because I think it's going to be fireworks at some stage. They are mates, but at the end of the day, uh, in a team situation, as soon as you feel like you're coming out as the number two, then that's when it all kicks off. So they're going to have to do a really good job of keeping it all together neat and tidy. But I just think that the Davizioso thing was, was really quite neat how he kind of turned up and congratulated the team on the podium. He's been doing a little bit of work with them. We really don't know how much. The quality of Davizioso is that he doesn't make public statements. Battistella, his, his manager, doesn't make public statements. They're a very close business unit that, that kind of do their business behind the scenes and get on with it. And I kind of quite like that. It's got a professional ring about it that I quite like. Um, they're not throwing their hands in the air or, or chucking out little snippets to the press left, right and centre if they can. And the fact that now Davizioso is all freed off to go and play at Petronas on a, on a Yamaha for the rest of the year as well. I mean, this is the gift that keeps giving, isn't it? I mean, it's just, <laughs> Maverick has really freed off quite an interesting second half of the year for, for Dovi as well. It's, it's going to be a really interesting few races. They really are. I think on that, Keith, the, the point you raise about the, the, the second rider, and Alasia's brought up Massimo Rivola arriving to the team is really changing things. Now, he obviously arrived after we saw the, you know, the, the Sam Lowe's and, and Scott Redding. I mean, I remember going to the pits to see Lowe's and things like that. And the atmosphere, as you say, was just, you could, you could cut it with a knife. I mean, it, it was a really, you could see that people just didn't want to be there. And they weren't even speaking, I think, certain parts of the team and, and things like that. Uh, you know, Alesh has, has credited Rivola, and I think with, with you know improving a lot of things in all areas with Aprilia, and I think that he will have a really important role to play as far as as Maverick's situation for for, for the reasons that you mentioned there, and also just a little bit on Dovi. I, I've got to think, you know, we don't know because they were private tests how quick he was going on the Aprilia, but as you say, knowing Dovi and the way that he would, you know, look at things, and he must have been done pretty well on that Aprilia to make him think, you know what. I can come back next year and I can be competitive. You know, I think that if he was going around and he was several seconds off the pace, you know, of a leash or off the bike, I think, I think Dobby would have thought, you know what, it, it, it's over. I think that he probably saw during those tests, because he did what, three, four tests. One of them was rained a bit, but that, that he saw what he needed to see to tell himself, you know, yeah, I can, I can still do this. I think that that, that maybe played a part also. We don't know, as I say, private tests, they're not like official tests. Official tests, we get all the lap times, don't we? And we can see things. 
um, you know, when the lap time was set, which is also this thing with Vinales. He said, as you mentioned, Harry, 33-0 was the first day. The second day, I checked the it was it went down to a 32-4, which right. basically matches his, his, um, his race-winning lap with the Yamaha now but we don't know was that done with a brand brand new tires zero fuel you know a two lap run or or did it come at the end of a, a 20 lap race simulation or something you know there's a there's a big difference there in, in when that lap time is set so there's still a lot of questions but either way you know as you've mentioned it's a competitive lap time and it it, it just sets things up for you know what's he going to do this weekend at Aragon we have spoken a lot, though, about the mental health uh, around Maverick Vinales at Yamaha. And it's interesting that he has so quickly said, you know, this is the happiest he's ever been in MotoGP. So th- that does, you know, p- tie in perhaps with your your thinking about, you know, the pictures of the Vizioso and the Italian vibe. But, Keith, you're looking like you don't agree with that sentiment whatsoever. I just think it's too soon. He hasn't been put under well, pressure yet. You know, the, yeah. the, the situation is, I mean, it's, it's funny that you, you mentioned... Rivola, yeah, he came through from Formula One. Davide Brivio went to Alpine in Formula One. You know, we're talking about that kind of level of management. So, Albesiano, you mentioned him a little earlier, Pete. I mean, Albesiano always looks like a guy that I wouldn't trust if I was buying a second-hand car off him. I'm sure that's not the case, but kind of. <laughs> he kind of seems to say things that, that are great for, for, for the media, Um but really, promises that were made to to riders in the past, you're right, pre-Rivola, have not kind of come to fruition. Uh, you mentioned Sam Lowe's earlier on. Sam Lowe's manager, we talked about this on the last podcast, was uh, Roger Burnett. Uh, Roger Burnett did a lot of due diligence before Sam signed for Aprilia. There were a lot of promises made. Um, nothing has been made public afterwards of what happened and why it all went pear-shaped. But... Now, Ali, the little factory is, is quite a small factory. Just, just wind it back to when Patronus were coming on board. Yamaha needed to know exactly what was going on engineering-wise in June. No later. I think it was the 26th of June. I don't know why that date fits in my mind, but there's something like there was a date in June. The cutoff was we cannot prepare another set of bikes for the following year after the after this June deadline. The engineering and the the, the preloading of all their engineering and all their their bits and pieces they need to get in line to get bikes ready for the following year is that far in advance so is it any surprise that that aprilia perhaps struggled a bit keeping up with their promises of 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 new motors faster motors this that and the other sure they will have had a, a motor on the bench that looked like it was going really really well but to convert that into something that you know arrives at the racetrack race ready ready to go and 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 that will stick together and won't throw its lunch up at the first opportunity at the end of the straight it's it's a it's a big engineering thing to to produce a prototype motorbike. Look at Suzuki, Valencia and Suzuki when their brand new MotoGP bike came out. All it did was cough its guts up. It was going great in testing, but as soon as you put it in the hands of a, I was I was going to say real racer. Of course, their testers are real racers as well. Um, but the point being is is that the boys that would wring its neck for for the last ounce of of power out of it on on a track even like valencia which you wouldn't have thought it would have exploded there but they did they went pop i remember it was really difficult for suzuki that first time and we all went oh my god you know poor suzuki what have they done they've come back to MotoGP, gp and now they're are they ever going to get it together and here we are now they're you know potential race winners um it's tough job engineering prototypes in this environment to a rule book remember as well that's the other thing they can't just do whatever they want they've got to stick to the parameters of a rule book and and that in itself, even though you've got V4s, inline fours, you know, 
different bits and pieces hanging all over. You've got spec electronics now. You can't do anything with them. They're all exactly the same. And if you want to do anything that's a bit wild, anything that's a bit different, it's got to be agreed by all the other manufacturers. You can't just uh, produce some something. Um, Ducati seem to and just about get away with it um, quite often. is a bit clever and uh, manages to produce something that um, no one else has, which is within the rules and gets away with it. I keep thinking of the scoop on the back, the aerodynamic, the tire cooler, as uh, it was <laughs> originally uh, labelled before it was recognised as an aerodynamic thing. Anyway, that's another story. I'm sure we can go on for a whole new podcast <laughs> on that one, Gary, another day. Well, I'm starting to head all, off. I can feel myself heading off. Yeah, I'll, I'll come in now. What this all means, of course, obviously, is that Lorenzo Savadori has uh, lost his seat, the rookie who, uh, I'm just looking at the standings now, he's 24th currently with uh, four points on the board. So he's been relegated down to uh, Test Rider and some wildcard entries. So a word on, on Savadori, because obviously, you know, he has been completely outpaced by Alicia Sparkro, but in his rookie season... But he's, been looking, but it, he's been looking good, Harry. I mean, I think yeah. that there has been an improvement from Savadori. I think it's always a bit cruel when someone comes in as a as a as part of the team and, and gets ousted straight away in these exceptional circumstances. Uh, I feel a bit sorry for Savadori, but hey, welcome to the real world. <laughs> You're not going to turn down a, a Vinales who's on offer, uh, are you? One word from both of you, though, from Simon. He asks this, will Vinales surprise us all this coming weekend? Yes or no? Yes. I'm going with a yes. Yeah, I mean, it depends. <laughs> surprise in what way, doesn't it? But yes, there'll be a surprise. <laughs> a good or a bad surprise. That was from Simon. Well, as you ever, Maverick Vinales dominating the headlines. Uh, also, uh, we've got um, a Jake Dixon back in the Petronas Yamaha seat for Aragon as well, which, of course, have set a, uh, a few dominoes off as well because John McPhee is finally uh, getting a chance as, uh, in his place in the Moto2 uh, campaign there. So good news all round for, for both those riders. Yeah, it seems like it fell in his lap, really, Jake. I don't think he was scheduled for it at all, was he, Pete? I think that um, the other rider, uh, Xavi Vierhe, I think, was was scheduled for it. And uh, for some strange reason, he knocked it back, which, you know, whether... whether um, you know, Jake had been sticking pins in an effigy of him or something and gave him a bad feeling about riding a MotoGP bike. But it's a great opportunity for Jake. I mean, he rode it really well at Silverstone. I mean, he's under the pressure of a home Grand Prix, a track like Silverstone, which is massively fast and wide. Uh, Aragon, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Aragon. It was uh, one of those tracks that I was always worried about that would drop off the end of the Spanish um, list of uh, favoured tracks. Because um, I think that that racetrack is a, it's a great racetrack. It's in a great place. It's fantastic to go to. Plenty of viewing places. I, I love the place. Yeah, I mean, we all thought Xavi Vierge would be on the bike this weekend. As, as you say, Keith, he seems to have turned it down. Seems to be the rumor, which is sort of a bit of a surprise, isn't it? it it's a strange one. I mean, Vierge, if he has, it's sort of the second time a MotoGP rider sort of come by and he's just missed out. You remember he rode for Tectoire for sort of many years in Moto2 and, and was really impressive with them. You know, their chassis wasn't the best at the time. He was top five in the dry, he got a podium in the wet. And then, but, you know, he thought, I need to get a Calix chassis to, to take that next step. And so he left the team. And at the time, they just signed Zarco and Folger. They just had their first year in MotoGP. So it didn't look like there was any room in the MotoGP team. And then what happened? Folger withdrew, didn't he? He phoned up Hervé in January and said, I'm not coming back. Suddenly, they need a MotoGP rider. And if Vieje hadn't have left the team only 
what, two months before, not even that, he would have been the guy to move straight up into that ride that eventually went to Hafiz Sarin. So he sort of narrowly missed out there on a MotoGP chance. And it seems now, for whatever reason, maybe, you know, what one thought is that the team were basically up front with him and said, look, you're not in the running for the for the seat next year with the team, you know. To, so this will be a one-off chance for you. And I think he thought, given the, the spec of the bike, that maybe there was more to lose than to gain or whatever. But we've spoken before, you know, it's a, for a young rider to turn down a MotoGP chance. We saw what Jake Dixon did at, at Silverstone. You know, I think we all agree he, you know, he came out of the weekend you know, higher up on the list of probability or, or his chances of getting a MotoGP ride than, than before it. So, you know, it's a big thing to do if he has turned it down. But either way, Jake has, has got this chance. It, it seems as they were satisfied with his performance and they'll give him this this other chance. Now, we don't know, you know, it seems like a head-to-head between Jake and Darren Binder for this the race seat next year. We don't quite know the way the team's thinking, you know, which one of them is maybe ahead. Some people say that Darren is still you know, the clear favourite. Others say, well, it's a bit, you know, a bit closer after Silverstone. But I think, you know, if Jake can pick up where he left off, well, at least left off after warm-up, let's say, you know, where he was 1.6 seconds off and then it sort of all went wrong in the race. But if he can can pick up from there, it's a similar lap time, Aragon, 1 minute 50, another, you know, Silverstone was 2 minutes. As Keith says, it's a great track. Not not completely different from Silverstone. It's got fast corners. It's a, a big flowing track. And of course, well, Morbidelli won last year on that bike. So, you know, we know the bike can go well around there. So there, everything's there for Jake, you know, to having thought about his debut weekend. As Keith says, he won't have the home pressure you know, come back. And if he can keep building on that, he can make it make it a hard decision for the, uh, well, current Patronus guys and, you know, for this new team that they'll have next year. It is always interesting, isn't it, when a rider turns down a MotoGP seat. It's, you just think, why would you do that if you're, you know, a, a young gun trying to get yourself higher up the list? Um, what that has done, though, with uh, Dixon back in, it's uh, meant that now they're giving a chance to John McPhee, who we have spoken a fair bit about uh, throughout the season and, and normally usually under trying circumstances but this is a good another breakthrough for for John to to get a chance in Moto2 again and to have a go on on a bigger bike you know it's a funny I have this slight feeling of trepidation here with this as it is at the minute because I think McPhee again he finds himself going into a Moto2 team which is right and he should there's the opportunity is there He's, he's done the right thing to go there they should have let him have it at Silverstone, in my view. He's not anywhere in the Moto3 Championship. He should have gone up into it uh, at Silverstone. I don't understand why they didn't do that, um, and I've never been out to find out why. But my worry is is that the team, Moto3 and Moto2, for next year is disbanding. This is a, this is a, a team that's on the descent. It's, it's, gonna, it's not going to exist next year. Moto2 is mega, mega competitive. It's a very tight field. You need to have, be, you need to have the best of everything to make it work. Again, my cynicism just wonders whether the bike will be the best that John McPhee can ride. I wonder whether Patronus, whether they've already given up on the deal regarding Moto2. You know, Jake moving up into into MotoGP, he's trying to battle for his place in MotoGP for 2022 and onwards. Um, I'm just wondering how the bike will fare itself um, and whether the team behind John McPhee will be able to give him what he needs and help him on his way on Moto2. He'll be able to ride it. There's no doubt about it. It'll be interesting to see if he can give us a shock on it. Bloody tough class, though. It's going to be thrown at the deep end, isn't it, Pete? Yeah, I was going to say, interesting, I mean, almost, is it a bigger step for John going from Moto3 to Moto2 mid-season than it was for Jake to go to MotoGP, given that Jake 
was a previous British superbike guy, you know, he had that experience, you know, I don't know what, which, which do you think is, uh, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. right in bringing that up. I think that that was the whole plan with the triumphs, the 765 triumphs and the, the, you know, the, the electronic spec package that, that's on them as well. It's all much closer to MotoGP than to Moto3, you know, Moto2 moved up the, up the order slightly. And I think that was the whole plan, you know, to, to, to make it technically more difficult to make it faster and make it, you know, a bike with a load more grunt than the, the old, 600 hondas had before so i think yeah it's a bigger step from moto 3 to moto 2 um not quite as big a step that darren binder's you know doing the jack miller and going moto 3 straight through to moto gp that's a massive step both technically and physically um (laughs) and i remember jack jack i don't know whether he put on a load of weight just because it I don't quite know what happened, but Jack Jack came back. Jack came back a bit fat the next year. I remember thinking, <laughs> I know, I know, it's not right to say these things anymore. You're not allowed to, but I just did. He did come back a little bit more bark on him, and 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 it wasn't particularly muscly. And uh, he had to really have a have a word with himself and get himself back into being a proper MotoGP rider. And look what he's. I mean, I, I rate Jack so highly, um, but that was a tough job. Moto three to Moto GP. Um, you're right, Jake Dixon, good superbike rider previously, good on big bikes, you know, got the right kind of body work for it, hasn't he? He's a, a rangy sort of, you know, Rossi kind of a build on him. Um, mm. I think it's going. I think it's going to be good for him. I'm looking forward to seeing him at Aragon. I think that he's any nerves that he had, which you won't ever see with Jake, because it's always it comes out as as, as fun and smiles. Um, but he will have been nervous at Silverstone. It would have been playing on him. He would have had a bit of a sleepless sleepless night over it occasionally before that now he's had that behind him he's 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 got used to the bike these boys catch on real quick you know top line motorbike racers catch on very 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 fast so Aragon, you know expect something a little bit better out of um jakey boy there i think it's a it's a result of the fence <laughs> well lots of things as ever to watch out for this weekend we'll uh we'll come on and talk a little bit more about what to expect at Aragon this weekend uh in a few moments but first uh, let's just sidestep ever so slightly um because uh, it would be a miss of us not to talk about uh what happened in world superbikes at the weekend just gone because we've had many questions come in on it through uh through our wonderful listeners on on social media on Crashnet socials so thank you for getting in touch um it's about track limits. So it's not something we're unfamiliar with here. It's it, We talked about it on previous podcasts gone by in terms of, you know, if you do leave the track and you gain advantage, yes, you should be penalised. But if you're not gaining a lasting advantage, should you be penalised uh, as severely for it? Which seems to have been the case, Keith, this weekend in the form of Top Rack, who, uh, who lost his Super Bowl win uh, because of a so-called track limits excursion. If you gain an advantage, then yes, you should be penalised. But as many questions have come in, uh, Keith, uh, they feel that this one was particularly unjust. Just talk us through a bit about about what you saw unfold. Is there a phrase that's more hated anywhere in motorsport than the words exceeding track limits? Nope, is the answer to that. You don't even need to answer it. I I put a little bit on my timeline regarding this because I'm outraged by it. There's two, there's two aspects to this, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot of people that are demonizing Kawasaki, John, Jonathan Ray. Forget that. Nothing wrong with what Jonathan Ray or his team did. If they put a protest in, good. I would. If I was Perariba, would have been straight in there, straight away, because it's within the rules. Top Rack broke the rule. He hit the green paint. Um, 
Johnny saw it, Jonathan saw it. So we ended up where we ended up. Now, whether that was a protest from Kawasaki or not, or whether that's just social media getting excited again like it does, it goes off on a conspiracy theory type situation. But the point being is that if he touched the green, which he did by about a millimetre, people will argue, well, that's the rules. Yes, it is the rules as they are at the moment. The rules are stupid. It's completely wrong. It's just a nightmare. And why people can't find the common sense to just be able to work this out, I don't know. There will be corners on a racetrack that you gain an an advantage, a tiny advantage or whatever it might be, any advantage gained, you should be penalised. That's my view. MotoGP have got sensors now on the green paint, picks them off. Every time someone touches it, they get a penalty. Or the fact is if they, they go outside track limits on three occasions, they get a warning. If they've done it by five, then they're going to get a penalty. That's a fact. Now, on the last lap, there was this rule that came up that if you if you if you took, went on the on the paint and got a, an advantage on the paint, then you had to go back one position, and that's presumably the one that we've got here with World Superbikes. I've not read the World Superbike rules, but I, I would assume that they must be something like this. Um, but where Top Rack went across the paint, I mean, it's a white line for God's sake. There's, there's, it's just a bit of paint. There is no advantage to be had at all, at all. There's a there's a there's a piece of paint on Mizano when you come out the last corner, which is Mizano, I think, isn't it? The last corner, and you come out onto the onto the front straight. And there's a little bit of white paint that juts out at an angle, just like that. And that's class. When you run over the end of it, the little pointy bit, that you that, that is no advantage there, not to a MotoGP bike or any other motorbike. There's no advantage. You just It's just your natural run through the corner. Um, you're not exceeding track limits, but, of course, you are within the rule book, and you get penalised. My point being, before I really, really wind myself up with this, because I've been, I've been excited about it since I saw it earlier on, I just think it just ruined the weekend. Um, because it was a perfect weekend. It was a brilliant weekend for World Superbike. Best advert World Superbikes has had in a long time. Top Rack versus Jonathan Ray. Jonathan Ray, the king of superbikes, the most successful man. Kawasaki, the mighty Kawasaki. And suddenly you've got a bloke on a Yamaha, a Turk as well, you know, a nation that's got 84 million people that are, are all watching motorbikes now from the president downwards. You know, suddenly it's a big deal again. You know, it's, and they penalise him for this non-beneficiary piece of paint now get in there um point being there will be corners that you can benefit from run off on those touch the paint on those instant penalty done nothing nothing to worry about you're 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 accumulating your penalty or whatever it is that you're going to get later on in the race but corners like the one that he he ran on the white line it's just a flat out corner the thing that stuns me is that stewards are any of them, have they, any of them been on a 200 mile an hour motorbike? I mean, the, the difference between the inch on the inside when everything is moving around and it's all got late in the race and the whole thing's squirrely and squirming and God knows what, you know, you could have a little bit of wind and it would have you over on, on that part, but there was no gain to it because Jonathan passed him, what, within two seconds. He passed him at the next, next corner, I think it was, you know, so there was no gain there at all. The point being, if stewards, organizers rule books should allow for certain corners at certain tracks to be automatic penalties and there are other parts on the track where there is no gain to be had um so therefore you know forget it it shouldn't be that bit of paint should just be a bit of paint just do what you like with it is my view i mean i'm not quite as extreme as i think it came back to jamie whittam i love jamie whittam came back to him <laughs> and, and he had his because i think every man and his dogs had a rant over this um but but jamie's got the the, the really old school view which is ah, should put bloody gravel there that it wouldn't go in it then that's natural penalty and all the rest of it but 
of course, those that say that, and I know Jamie would be the same. He's just he's just outraged with what's happened as well. But you know, you can't do that. It's about safety. I mean, the the, the reason why we have these wonderful runoffs now and great big bits of tarmac is because it's safe, and they should be there. You've you, you know, the, the, I'm not saying for one second that we should have grass, you know pseudo grass or gravel or anything else to, to keep track limits. I think that's completely wrong and it would be a retrospective step. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be penalties for anywhere where somebody's game, team or rider, because now that we live in an era of where everything is timed to three decimal places and quite often you'll get three riders on one lap that's done three decimal places each. So you've got three riders that have got exactly the equal time. That's happened. You can't allow any rider or any team to be able to sneak an inch on the racetrack. This particular situation in Manicor um, wasn't about pinching an inch. It was the tiniest, tiniest, and it made no difference to the lap. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I think I'd, all I'd add to that <laughs> is that, yeah, I don't understand. I mean, I, I only saw, I was quite you know, shocked to see that as anyone else, but I don't understand why it's a track limit if there's, if there isn't a curb before it. I think that would be easier. So, you know, if someone goes over a curb, fair enough. But when it's just a white line, I don't, I don't understand why they count that as needing to be track limits, if you like, why it's not just a normal white line around the edge of the track like everywhere else. They obviously think that there is an advantage to cutting it. Well, if there's an advantage, then put a curb there and be, be like the other corners where, you know, you, you've got to run over a curb and then you're onto the track limit. But just to brush across a small white line and for that to take away someone's win seems yeah, extremely sort of petty and mm. <laughs> over the top, doesn't it? Well, um, I think what they've done, what they've done, Peter, is they've left themselves open for criticism and for the usual, you know, and I don't believe this for a second, for the for the, the good old conspiracy theorists of that they only want Jonathan to win a world championship. And, and these these change and, you know, fill in any name you like. Jonathan this week could be top rack next week, could be, you know, Scott Redding the week after. You know, conspiracy theories are always a waste of time and I don't usually spend any time talking about them. But it does fire up a fair proportion of people and social media. And I think the other thing as well is it wasn't instant. It was hours after the fact. You know, so you've got the result. Top Rack's been on the top step of the podium. There's not an investigation or anything going on. You know, you should have like 10 minutes to make your protest. If you've got a protest, you should have only 10 minutes to get it in there, then half an hour for it to be worked out or whatever it is. Delay the bloody the ceremony or whatever you like. So, um, so there isn't, not. sorry, Keith, just a button. There isn't like a time limit because we've had a lot of the questions coming in have said, you know, the penalty for top rack and Super Bowl race came through so late, which is a bit of a farce. Is there a time limit that when they can announce these things? You know, why did Superbikes take so long well, uh, for the well, penalty to come through? Bikes. It's not just Superbikes, Harry, it's MotoGP as well. There have been, you know, stewards meetings late into the night to, to try and unravel what mm. they, you know, penalties. And once the penalty is in, I think there is a time limit to when you can get it in there. But I don't think there's a time limit as to when you can actually <laughs> levy the penalty. You know, quite often you, you turn up at the at work in the morning and the uh, first thing you do is go through the, the sheets to see who's been penalised for what, don't you? I mean, people do the same thing. They just... You're at the track, and the first thing you look at is who's got bloody long lap penalties, and and you know so on and so forth, um, because it does take a lot of going through. I mean, in MotoGP terms, there's three stewards, Freddie Spencer being the head of them. Um, you know, I can't say Freddie's got it right all of the time, in my view. Um, but then again, I'm you know what am I? I'm I'm sitting there as a commentator. You know, it's it's when it becomes everybody else's opinions, it can't be about opinions either. I think you see this is the other thing that. You know, the loudest voice ranting gets things changed. Well, no, they shouldn't be able to. That's that's not the way. It should be a clear situation. 
but it never quite seems to be. And then if we go back into the MotoGP, Moto3, Moto2 situation, the penalties don't seem to be consistent. You know, it's, it, it, uh, they, they, you know, some people seem to get a slightly bigger penalty than others do. And then MotoGP riders seem to get away with everything compared with Moto3 riders. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's just not got that consistency attached to it. And I think that that brings our sport into disrepute. I really do. I think that if we can't be clear and transparent with everything that we're doing, from a from a rule point of view, um, then we end up with a little bit of egg on our face. And I think the World Superbike this weekend have ended up with egg on their face. I really do. I think that it was a fantastic weekend. I couldn't get away from the telly. I've got my mum in hospital, and I'm trying to deal with things like my mum in hospital. My, my, I've got my kids here as well. And balancing all this, and I'm sort of phoning one-year-old and scanning the TV for World Superbike. It's fantastic. Seeing Jonathan and Top Rack Razgatioglu fight the way they did really really good i mean i i tweeted something along the lines of reminded me of the old days the early days of schwantz and rainy when they were four stroke riders against each other back in the day um and that rivalry went right the way through in the end to to grand prix 500 grand prix obviously but the early days of them transatlantic trophy you see schwantz and and rainy even though they're on the same bloody team fighting with each other it was just spectacular and there wasn't any animosity early on, and I said something along like this, uh, uh, between Razgatti Oglu and, uh, and Jonathan Ray, I didn't expect there to be any animosity, but there probably will be now. You know, it's, it's now, now we have some. And is it justified? No, it's not, because Jonathan Ray, his team, did the right thing to win a world championship. Three points they've gained through this protest, if it was a protest, if it was a, a word in someone's ear. I don't know what the details are. I've not not been at the track, obviously. But the fact is, is that they are quite within their rights and they, they no one should, should is the word denigrate, I think, should get on their case over it. They, di- they did what that a professional outfit should do if that's what the rules say. I've got no truck with what they've done or what they've said. Mm-hmm. Or, or even what's happened with this with, with this situation. If Razgatioglu ran across onto the green, and he did, just just touched it, minute amount of touching it. Before you had to have both wheels on the green. As long as you had a, as long as you had a bit of the tire touching the white line, you didn't get a penalty. Now it's gone. If you only touch the green, you get the penalty. I mean, they've even moved the goalposts since last year now. But the fact is, if that's the rule, he's got the penalty. Full stop. Some people would say. My point is it's a stupid rule that should only really apply to parts of the track that you will gain an advantage. There, I, if someone can demonstrate to me that there was any advantage in the, the millimetre extra that he had by touching the green um, through that part of the track where everything's flat stick and on the, on the stop, you know, the, 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 uh, fair dues come back at me, but don't if you haven't got that in evidence. <laughs> I think also, Keith, I mean, let's be honest, Kawasaki shouldn't have had to put in a protest for this. You know, if Race Direction are going to put green paint on, on the track, they should have it covered by, as I think they do in MotoGP, multiple camera angles and everything else. And they should have been knowing, you know, this is a last lap victory battle. They should have been glued to every little area of track limits and reviewed it. And, and you know, it shouldn't have come down to putting Kawasaki in this situation of going, I think you guys have missed this which is basically what's happened here, isn't it? They've said, look, we think you've missed this. And they've had to go back and go, 
basically, yes, we have. And and give it, you know, and it doesn't, as you say, it then brings Jonathan Ray and Kawasaki into a situation that, that shouldn't need them at that all they don't, involved. They don't, deserve, they don't deserve the stick that they're getting for it because, you know, it is a rule break at the end of the day. Mm. You're right. I mean, none of the I, – I was back through the – when I got to the end of the day and found out that Razgaroglu had, had been penalised, I went back through the, the tape, which is a great thing you can do when you're not on air. I love that. <laughs> when you're at home, you can do it. When you're back at work, you can't. Um, I went back through it and I thought, surely not that. And, and and it didn't show the the final lap. You never saw it on the final lap of the broadcast footage. It didn't show you it. Um, but what they did was they then rewound the Kawasaki, you know, Jonathan's on on-board camera – and the only way you could see it was from Jonathan's onboard camera. And that's what Jonathan saw. And, you know, it, so someone somewhere wasn't paying attention. You know, these the stewards were obviously watching the broadcast output, not the entire output for, that, that you need to watch if you are responsible for levying a penalty. And relying on another team to make a protest is always, you're right, it leaves a horrible taste in, in the mouth. And Kawasaki don't really deserve the stick for it because it should have been upheld, like you say, quite rightly, by the stewards in the first place. Having said that, it's still a bloody stupid rule. <laughs> it, it seems like, you know, for all the talk of, you know, gravel and, and grass and the safety implications that that brings in, the really the only solution is is common sense between, uh, you know, the, the stewards and people watching. That seems to be, unless somebody can come up with some synthetic new thing, material that's safe and can also slow down riders and deter them from even going anywhere near a potential track limits violation, that seems to be I the think, only thing, the only logical solution, right? I think the problem is, is the rule is correct. I think what it is, is a blanket rule across every corner, across every part of the track is not correct. You know, discretion was how it was before. If someone thought you'd taken advantage when you went through a chicane or something like that, you'd have to lose three seconds through a chicane. Well, mm. show me a rider who can imagine three seconds in their head to roll out the throttle for, you know, and, and not get penalised. It's, it's almost impossible. So we've gone to this system where if you go off the track, you know, you can still get penalised more. If you, if you cut a corner... The stewards are quite within their rights to penalise you more. They can measure the, your sector time and can work out whether you had an advantage by doing it or not. And if you did, then, you, then you, you've got a problem coming your way. But these minute indiscretions where the sensors pick the stuff up, sure, on some corners where there is an advantage. And let's talk about the advantage. So you are, you are trying to cut the corner. Say you're picking up a load of inside curb. You are looking to try and get on that throttle a little earlier and run out across as much tarmac as you can. You're looking for getting on the throttle earlier. So you're carrying an extra mile an hour. That's the minute amount of difference that some of these uh, indiscretions are, are likely to cause. It's about finding that extra little bit. You have got to be able to legislate against that because we are in that, that situation where measuring the three decimal points nowadays, you know, every little bit counts. It sounds like a Tesco advert, but it's, it is literally every little every little helps and i think that i'm not i i'm actually a, an advocate of of these kind of penalties in appropriate places i don't want it left to a bunch of stewards you know even freddie spencer hasn't raced one of these motorbikes so making decisions based on these types of motorcycles i always find that slightly tricky if you've not got somebody who understands the dynamic you can't see what they can feel when they're racing a motorbike when you know 200 mile an hour 225 mile an hour at somewhere like Mugello that's a rate of knots 
most of us have never been anywhere near that speed. I mean, I think the top speed when I was racing was 170 mile an hour, something like that, 175 mile an hour. You know, we're talking about 50 mile an hour more. Um, and I think we raced on tracks like, you know, Ricard. Well, I don't think that we raced on them. We did race on Ricard, which which had a straight that was forever. And we're still only 175 mile an hour. I mean, God knows what these things would do if you put them on somewhere like Ricard on the old Mistral straight. Uh, probably getting getting 250 mile an hour or something unbelievable. But anyway, the, the point being is that those making the decisions maybe haven't got all of the tools they need to be able to make a discretionary decision. So therefore, it has to rely on technology for for levying a penalty, like a a circuit marker, like we get in MotoGP, but not on all corners, not not on every little bit of paint that sticks out. Is my argument? Forgive my naivety here, but do they ever have a a riders steward on on the board as well, <laughs> or is that not a thing? Because obviously, well, that is coming Spencer. from. That is for all right, but oh, okay. So because you know, at, at, coming from as we all know, the four wheeled world, they have a different driver steward every single race, and it you know, and it's usually you know someone who's maybe not raced in a fair while, but at least has some half decent experience of what it's like dishing out penalties. So that's clearly perhaps something to look into. Well, I think I think the situation there is if it, you know riders, if you've got a bit of a coming together, someone's washed your front out or someone's mm. tagged you or whatever it might be, then then a rider a rider steward will understand the dynamic of that better than an ordinary right. person. You know, something that looks outrageous to some is just shrug your shoulders to others. It's uh, um, so understanding the dynamic of racing a, a motorcycle when it's all on the move at hundreds of miles an hour. Then then um, that's Freddie would still be good at that because that hasn't okay. changed that much. But I think this track limits thing is horrendous track limits thing that we're all going through across the board of motorsport um it's it's it needs you're right about the common sense thing but but the downside of that if you leave it to the common sense of the stewards you you have an inconsistent from track to track decision making process Um, if they reversed it now what would be the fallout from that if they went back on their decision well, didn't we have that recently? I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the, the you know we had that recently, didn't we? Where where a decision was rescinded uh, afterwards, Italy and they just look doubly they look doubly stupid when they do that, yeah. you know, because basically you shouldn't have done it in the first place. And then when they realised that you know it was a bit silly, that you know they gave the gave the time back. It made no difference to the overall result. Um, this is a last lap situation, um, but there was no advantage gained. There was there was no advantage gained. I mean, it, and that's the point. And I, I think the problem is, I, I think, isn't it that you have to show a disadvantage? And, and I think this is where it's it's too strict, isn't it? So what happens? I'm guessing they 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 kind of proved right. You did go into the green. So then you they look at the the sector time, and, and you have if you haven't shown a disadvantage from doing it not even an advantage, but you actually have to show a disadvantage, which he wouldn't have shown. Obviously, he's going flat out in his last lap. Therefore, you get the penalty, and I, I think there's just there needs to be way more tolerance in in those kind of sort of situations in the last laps, and and you know unless a rider has a clear advantage, because it wasn't deliberate, as Keith said, the idea that at that speed that he was deliberately shaving off you know a few a centimeter and a bit of the track in that area, it, it, you know, it, it, mm. yeah, the, it's it's the disadvantage was that Jonathan passed him into the next corner. <laughs> yeah well yeah. yeah i mean you, you think that might actually be a you know a fair defense wouldn't you i mean why why not just yeah he, par- he passed me i yeah 
that is the disadvantage. You can see how uh, we could talk about it for uh, a very lengthy amount of time. If you added up all the (laughs) minutes on throughout the podcast so far this uh, year, how much of that is dedicated to track limits? I dread to think how much. What was quite amusing, though, Harry, was that that I tweeted my outrage of it and and Top Rack was the first bloke to retweet me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we should have asked him to come on. We should have asked him to come on. He's probably got some time. Give his side of the story. <laughs> did, did, he, did he send in the question? Was it yeah, from, yeah. <laughs> and that one was from, uh, yeah, it just says TR. So I don't know. Um, well, let's, uh, I think, we, I mean, there's never, we, we, always, we always have to just park it there because, you know, we, we don't make the decisions at the end of the day and the rule book is the rule book, isn't it? But uh, until it gets a proper look at and in, uh, until those inconsistencies are ironed out, we're going to constantly have these uh, conversations. Uh, just uh, off of the, that, though, we've uh, got a lot of listener questions in and uh, this isn't to do with track limits, but... Um, um, Dan Boney's just asked, uh, any chance of Kawasaki coming back to MotoGP? Uh, it's an old question, isn't it? But no, Kawasaki heavy industries, I think that they're, they are where they are. I mean, they, they had that little look of, you know, ages ago now. It's, it's such a long time ago. But, I mean, they have the resources, but they just don't seem to be interested in stretching themselves to, to that situation. That's why I'm so impressed with the likes of Aprilia and, and, and obviously uh, Suzuki back in the day and you know you, you could ask the same of bmw bmw a massive manufacturer you know got a great road bike that's going pretty good in world superbikes now um maybe it doesn't represent what they're doing on the road so much perhaps they take that viewpoint i don't know but kawasaki no can't see them coming back not into motor gp Sorry, Dan. Um, Sandra has asked as well, uh, how do you think uh, Morbidelli and Davizioso uh, will do? What do you expect from them after their uh, return from from injury and absence, of course? It's a tricky question, isn't it, Peter? I've got to say, because Morbidelli's injury, he's been out of it longer than I thought he'd be out of it. Um, When you come back from a layoff like that, it's a fair bit of time. I, I mean, he's... He's a good runner, Morbidelli, but it's going to be interesting to see when he comes back just how much this is going to hold him back. I mean, again, without being party to the to the road that he's on, um, recovery-wise, it's a tricky one. Davizioso's been out of it a long time as well. Really, really, I, I have to say, this is one of the... I, I can feel the splinters up my backside at the moment sitting on the fence with this, which is really <laughs> unusual for me. <laughs> normally, 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 I jump either side of the fence, whichever one I fancy. But I have to say that this really is... Thank you very much, young lady, for the for the text. It's going to be one of them ones that I, I can't call. I don't know. And I don't think anybody really does. Um, Dovi, world-classed, um, should have been a world champion rider. Uh, should have been a MotoGP world champion rider, by the way. I'll clarify that very quickly. Um, Morbidelli, on his way, was looking really, really good for winning Grand Prix this year, more Grand Prix this year. Um, it's all going to be about how rusty Dobby is and how well recovered Morbidelli is. Take your pick. Don't know. And, and also, Keith, I mean, Morbidelli's moving teams in the middle of the year. Presumably, his crew are staying put. So he will be, you know, taking over the ex-Vinales, you know, crew chief and everything else, you know. So Fulcada and the guys will stay at Patronus until the end of this year. So, so Morbidelli, he's, he's going to have to adapt to the, the, the new bike, the factory spec bike, you know, 2021 bike, so, which he hasn't tested. He's also going to have a new group of people around him in the team to adapt to as well. And, of course, the, the biggest unknown 
the injury. You know, I think he, he's been at Mizano on a road bike, isn't he, trying his fitness, but then we haven't heard anything more. And, you know, if that had gone fantastically, you've got to believe that he probably would have come back for Aragon. Instead, it's it's going to be Mizano. So, yeah, I mean, the big question mark is, is obviously the fitness, but there's also a lot of new things going on for him, the new bike, new team. It's it's uh, a lot happening there. And, and for Dovi, the same. So it's really hard to predict yeah, exactly, you know, how quickly they'll settle in. I mean, the track, Mizano, it's not a power track that, you know, Morbidelli won last year at the track. So, you know, we know he goes well. It's his home event. The Yamaha should go very well there. We know that much. But, you know, both of them have got so many unknowns at the moment that, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a tough one to call. Dobby's got the easier task, I think, coming back on an older bike with Patronus. There's not going to be as much pressure on Dobby, so he's going to have this this second half of the year to to himself to enjoy, probably. Um, Morbidelli's got the tougher one. You're right. I think factory ride. Quattararo got on very well with the upgrade, though, didn't he? Jumped straight across and he went really well. It's going to be more down to the injury. How that if it's if it's limiting in any way um, his mobility when he gets on the bike, and how he can move that bike around. I mean, it's a very very physical thing. So we'll wait and see. But Mizano, I mean, there's a few corners there you can throw it up the road without trying too hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's got to be said. <laughs> well, um, Johnny Bowers uh, on the uh, Davizioso um, talk has uh, thrown in a question uh, with his big wooden spoon, I think, as well. Why are Yamaha having Dovi back uh, when he did nothing on the Yamaha before? And why is Dovi going back to a satellite team when he couldn't produce the goods on a factory bike? Is he just skint? Tell it how you see it. That's what I say. <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy that question. <laughs> well, uh, he's right. At the end of the day, you you wonder sometimes about decisions made, don't you? When you you, you can see that, that you know there's this backlog of, of young kids that are coming up through the ranks. That that there are going to be some very good bikes going to some very old blokes, mm. and uh, that is is a is a is a question. It really is. I mean, difficult to answer. I mean, I think that Davizioso, if he'd come back at the beginning of this year, if he'd ridden at the beginning of this year, I would have thought that's all right. But I just think it's gone on a bit too long. I mean, I, I worry about whether every, the thing about MotoGP, and I've said it so many times on this website, that, that things move on really fast. You know, the, it, it just so it has a life of its own. It moves on really, really quickly. And Davizioso is a world class rider, but. He's got to step up so bloody fast. It's going to be very interesting to see how he gets on with it. Again, another one. It's a difficult one to answer, isn't it? I mean, it's it's how long's a piece of string. It's it's like we don't have enough data here to be able to answer the question. Um, we'll see. Let's go on for something positive, shall we, Harry? Come on, find us something positive. <laughs> Well, thank you, Johnny, for that question, uh, for bringing, no, bringing, no, us, uh, <laughs> bringing <laughs> us all down. Cheers, Johnny. Thanks for that one. Um, well, th- before uh, there is uh, actually this topic before um, we come on proper to Aragon. So I know I keep teasing it and, and we, well, we were talking about it the whole time anyway. But um, I want to talk about something I missed last time out, which was this uh, what to do with Suzuki, who um, have remo- removed their ride height device uh, after sort of a promising debut in Austria. Both riders reverted to the the standard rear suspension in Silverstone, and you know they were the last manufacturer to fit the the rear um, ride height device. And uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because because um, Someone asked the question, and I've lost it. Oh, there it is. Ashley asked the question, why did Suzuki remove the lowering device for Silverstone uh, when there are a number of straights, and is that going to carry on for here in Aragon as well? 
There's only one reason why a factory removes anything off their bike. It didn't bloody work like they thought it was going to. That's an absolutely simple fact. Um, if there was no benefit in it, you wouldn't be carrying the extra weight. It's got extra weight. You know, I can't remember how much it weighs now. Is it kilo, kilo and a half, something like that? So you wouldn't be dragging an extra kilo and a half around if it didn't actually do something that benefited you. Um, I have to say, though, I'm surprised because that debut was brilliant. I mean, it really, really seemed to work for them. But um, whether they've got, you know, an upgrade to that, and we're going to be seeing an upgrade as we get to, you know, Aragon, does it need it at Aragon? I wonder. They'll be making their decisions on it as, as where it will be best to be be fitting it. But the worry is, of course, is if you have it here and don't have it there, it confuses riders. You do like a bit of consistency in the way that a bike feels or the equipment you've got to play with um, in the way of launch and the like. So I don't know. I mean, it's but the, the simple answer is it obviously didn't work as well as they thought it should. So therefore, it was chucked in the back of the garage for the, the last one. Whether it comes out again, we'll see. Yeah, the, the difficulty at Silverstone for ride height devices is it you've got fast corners. And and for these these systems to kind of disengage, you need to be braking really hard. Do you remember, Keith, a few years back, Jack Miller on the Pramac Ducati, he, he set the, the, the rear of the bike down at the start of the race and it didn't pop up at turn one. And, the, and this is, I think it's an extension of that, is that, that Suzuki were concerned that, that, that it might not release. And so when you combine that with, because it's fast corners going onto the straights, you don't gain as much. So even the riders, and Rossi was saying, you know, he said, yeah, I've got it, it's working. But to be honest, you know, at this track, it doesn't really make that much difference. Whereas the Ducati one, which seems really fine-tuned, and we even hear now that it might even be automatic in some sense, that they found a way to kind of, you know, it has to be, it can't be electronic, you know, or anything like that. But there's these rumors that, and also Aprilia seems to be quite a, have a have a system that Alasia's tried that that what do they mean by automatic that's the big question it, it seems like you know that they have to engage it but maybe the moment that it actually goes down on the back on the exit of the corners is somehow you know the bike does it at the right time itself it seems that's probably what they mean by automatic the point being the Ducati these systems they've got really advanced with them the Suzuki one had done one race and in Austria you know slow corner Fast straight, slow corner. So you've got you get the benefit out of the slow corner. You then get the hard braking, which means that that it pops back up and it releases. But at Silverstone, they were I think they were worried about the Jack Miller thing from a few years back of it might not pop up. The bike then stays down chopper style until you know, and they're there trying to frantically as Jack was brake as hard as they can to make it pop up. So I would expect it to be back on the bike at Aragon. There's that big long back straight, isn't there? That's got a slow chicane onto it, and I think that's where you're really, you know, if they haven't got it on the bike there, they're going to really suffer. But at Silverstone, they could get away with it because the gains weren't quite as big as we saw with Rins in the race. He was able to do a good race even without it. Mm-hmm. So. I was just smiling to myself while he was going through that, thinking of the technicalities and the like that you need to, to make that kind of device work. And I, and I was thinking back to Imola, 1979, Spondon Engineering came up with this. Yes, Harry, a long way before you were born. <laughs> <laughs> Might even be a long way it, before but... Pete was born. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> one, one year after. <laughs> so, Spondon Engineering came up with this thing for a TZ750 Yamaha, which is what I was riding at the time, which was a weapon in its day. Bearing in mind, uh, uh, Tamburello was a was a flat left virtually, even on a 750 back then, before Paul Senna, bless his 
uh, Cotton Socks met his uh, maker in that corner and they put a chicane in there. But but back in the day, Tamburello was it was almost flat on a 750MR through there. And Spondon Engineering came up with this system to sort out your ride height. Um, when you jam, it was all mechanical. There's nothing to it. When you, when you jam the front brakes on, there was like a pivot thing at the front that used to try and push the forks back out rather than let them sink. So you had like an anti-dive, a mechanical anti-dive system. So it used to hold a fork, so you'd be breaking like a flatten the tire out. Bearing in mind, tires were terrible in those days as well. So you can imagine that how that felt. But the worst part of it, that was in conjunction with this thing on the back, this rod on the back, that was connected to a floating caliper. So when you use the back brake, it pulled the back end of the bike down to get it flat. So you had this flat rod into 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 a turn. But honestly, I mean, we were a bit sophisticated even back then. We'd use a bit of back brake in the middle of a corner to settle everything down and the like. But it used to feel like someone was whipping the chair out from underneath you every time you touched the back brake. <laughs> the arse end of the bike sat down. And I was just thinking about how Heath Robinson, look it up if you're too, too young, Heath Robinson and mackled about the junk that we had to try on what were in those days, a sophisticated, bloody, so-called sophisticated motorbike. Bloody fast motorbike. I mean, you know, that particular motorbike was lap record holder at Northwest 200, 125 mile an hour plus on a, on a lap. You're talking, you know, very fast motorbikes. And the junk that we got, everything was held together with baling twine, rivets and rubbish. It was just amazing. And now we have all these extra things to think about, ride height controls and so on. Thank you, Gigi Delinia. I'll have a word with Gigi, see if he can use any of that Spondon engineering stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes old is best. Um, thank you, That's Ashley. That's what I say to everyone, Harry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet. Uh, thank you, Ashley, for that question. One more uh, from our listeners. I think we can squeeze in. Uh, and this is actually uh, from, I'm not going to pronounce this correct, so I'm going to apologize already, from uh, Vojtek Horak. Um, who says, uh, we fans and visitors of the uh, traditional Grand Prix in Borno miss MotoGP. Are the riders missing it? Is there any chance of a Grand Prix in the Czech Republic anytime soon or in the future? Obviously seeing a lot of announcements already being made uh, provisionally for calendar, uh, 2022 calendar, mainly the pre-season calendar, but Czech Republic again on the calendar? Bruno's brilliant. I mean, I love Bruno. It's it's one of them tracks that you you know it's old school, isn't it? It's I raced on the bloody road track. <laughs> it's the second Grand Prix I ever did. I did the road track. I think I finished in the bloody top six as well. Anyway, that's a, I, I reminisce too far. Um, but the the actual racetrack that you're talking about, young man, is um, is the is a great racetrack, but it's shiny. Yeah, you know, it needs a surface on it, and the trouble is there's no money. I mean, I, I think what's happened is is that. You know, the leaseholder, mentioning no names, but we know who he is, son of uh, father of a rider who owns the lease on the place. Um, unfortunately, the local authorities don't want to stump up the cash to resurface the place again. Um, I think the trouble you have in somewhere like the Czech Republic, in, 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 you know, when you're in the middle of a big landmass like Bruno, it's um, absolutely cooking hot in the summer and absolutely freezing cold in the winter. And that's not a really good thing for a bit of tarmac. It tends to wear tarmac out fairly hard um, when it's frozen for half of the year and cooked for the other half of the year. So the problem is the track has become too slippery, too unpredictable. And so therefore, you know, that was the excuse to use for getting rid of um, Bruno off the calendar. The fact that there may be more lucrative um, Southeast Asian tracks that are pushing to get Grand Prix and 
a bit more room needed making in the calendar somewhere, we'll start all the conspiracy theory off again, really, won't it? You do wonder how such a popular event, I mean, you know, over 200,000, I think, pretty much every year, wasn't it? You know, how, how can that not be viable to have a race? But then, as you say, it needs a new surface. But then you have COVID and all these cancellations and, you know, there's no fans coming to the track. So so finding the money to, to resurface a track when, you know, you might not have any fans coming in to, to, to kind of, you know, as we saw last year, a lot of the events took place behind closed doors, wasn't it? So, I mean, all we can hope in that regard is that we're seeing fans coming back now, that maybe, you know, if that would change the economic situation in terms of doing the resurfacing because the fans are there. You know, how can it not be economically viable when you've got so many fans? I mean, I've, I've been to Bruneau a few times and, you know, it's just it, the buses coming constantly from the city, bringing people up, aren't they? And the whole, the whole forest, all the terraces of grass covered with people and you think well you know how can this event drop away from the calendar you know how can it be uneconomic with all of these people here but you know maybe the comp you know as it did need the track service there's no doubt about that the riders you know were pretty insistent on that and i think you know the double whammy of having that and then covid coming along so you've got a big bill but then you know you might not have a race so you know let's hope that that with the fans coming back that maybe that'll change things and 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 you know, who knows? But because the demand is definitely there, you know, the fans want to be there. You're talking huge money, though, aren't you? You're talking anything between eight and 10 million pounds to make that work. And Carol Abraham's dad, you know, he's a wealthy fella, I'm sure, and pretty smart, but it's a big old chunk mm-hmm. to be, um, you'd want to negotiate with your local authority and try and get that sorted out. If you've got it a bit comes, of tarmacking yeah. going on down in the town. But Bruno, it's a fantastic place to go. I mean, I wish we were doing a, you know, where to go in Bruno type um, feature. <laughs> because <laughs> i know no. all the places uh, <laughs> wrong week well maybe if it's back on the calendar we will get to do that but uh sadly for the time being it's not thank you so much for all the listener questions uh we're not uh, in the czech republic but we are in aragon this weekend so keith uh take it away what are you looking forward to talk us around the intricacies of this track and who you've got your eye on but don't give away who your predictions will be <laughs> it's a spectacular racetrack. I love the racetrack. I mean, I think that I always, th- I always think that Aragon gets a little bit less publicity than it really should do for how good it actually is. I think that you know we always end up in Valencia for the final round in Spain, and I think, oh, go kart track or Aragon? What would I prefer? Aragon all day long. It's a fant. If you're if you're going to travel to to go to Aragon, a you need to get your booking sorted out as far as your hotels concerned quite early. But having said that. Even if you were an hour away, I mean, we always stayed an hour, hour and a quarter away. But there is no drive I like more than going to the track or coming home from the track in Aragon. It is just the roads. I don't know what they've done out there. I think there was some, I mean, you might be able to put me straight on this, Pete. I think there was some government scheme where they, they just built beautiful roads because they wanted employment or something along those lines. And they built fantastic roads smooth fast and what you can see through them so you can you can get a bit of a skittle on you know and see the traffic so you, you you've really got it covered i mean from a motorcycle point of view it's heaven it really is a great place to go to and the track itself is like that it's very very modern great facilities you know great racetrack for all concerned lots of variation on there very fast straight downhill into the the final hairpin as well which gives you you know some of the plenty of vantage points to to see just how quick these bikes are going but it, it, I think it's it's one of the best racetracks on the calendar for me. I just enjoy the, the enjoy the racetrack. But most of all, it's the drive there. 
I mean, some of the stories, Julian, Julian's my favorite. I mean, I just passed the Repsol Honda van full of all the Repsol guys, you know, not that you're trying to impress anybody at all, but you're trying to get past the traffic to get to the track early as you do. And the sun's just coming up and I'm on it and I'm in the hire car and Julian sat beside me, sort of got his hands on the, on the, on the ceiling and trying to, you know, as we're motoring along. And there's this one particular session section where it's a fast right-hander and you, you're just cresting over a hill on this right-hander. And I just passed the Repsol Honda guys and was thinking, obviously about them not about the mini roundabout that was just the other side of the hill <laughs> every bit of flesh on julian suddenly went lightweight stuck to the ceiling and and he's straining in the straps as uh, as we we come down just uh, the the wrong side of the roundabout none of that should be condoned at all nobody should be doing that kind of thing we are strictly against all of that um i'd like to say it was a closed road but sadly not um but the roads are fantastic. The sunshine coming down on your way home from the track in the evening just puts you in such a good mood. I, th- I think Aragon is one of them good mood tracks. It's like there's no stress involved in it. There's not enough people really to cause you any problems as far as crowds are concerned. The road management is really, really good. The police, you know, they're, they're, they're quite tough, the Spanish police, but but they get you in and out of there really, really well. It's got a great atmosphere and you always get you know, decent race. When you've got a hairpin at the end of a, you know, when everyone's spreading out five wide into the final corner in Moto3, tends to get your attention a little bit. Have you ever thought about, um, I know you're looking for some more stuff to do, Keith, being a travel agent for uh, all these places on the calendar. You do an absolutely sterling job of selling it. Even the drive there, I'm there. I can imagine it right now. And the other thing is, is that um, when you do get caught, by cameras somehow the tickets don't turn up hey <laughs> it's true every cloud uh, <laughs> well it sounds like a, a I, can, spe- I can tell you which I, I can i can tell you now which countries you shouldn't get caught speeded in because you will get penalized <laughs> but but spain is still pretty lenient <laughs> i remember the first time i drove uh this year it was actually the first time i, I went to france to i was going my way to paul ricard and i was um i was driving there and i it was first time in a driving in a foreign country in the wrong side of the road wrong side of the car and the i didn't know which which was the slow lane because everything had just reversed and i remember being i was going a bit slowly in the fast lane and this taxi man overtook me and was just absolutely fuming at me right in the right in my right in his side mirror looking at me and so that was my that was my driving experience to paul ricard which doesn't sound as nice as yours to aragon uh, I quickly learned just to or, put my foot to the floor. Or anywhere else, Harry. We yeah. always have those guys. Yeah. <laughs> driving not... to and from a racetrack is just as much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it starts out stressful. It gets more fun. Um, Pete, let's uh, talk a bit more about Aragon, though, because um, we will be giving our predictions in imminently. But history for Aragon, who are you expecting to uh, go well and maybe not do so well this weekend? Well, well, firstly, the race is a bit earlier this year, isn't it? I mean, last year, a lot of the calendar was sort of pushed back, wasn't it? So it, I think it was a sort of mid-October time and it, and it was quite cold. It, get, it gets quite cold, though, even this time of year, you know, September. But as, as Keith will know, yeah, and, you know, the mornings you want a coat on. So, you know, that, but that won't be so much of a factor this time. So that, that, that could influence things, you know. We always say the tyre allocation, you know, what will that be like? Who will that suit? Um, it was a double header last year. So we had, we had you know, the back-to-back races there. 
And we saw, as often, two completely, you know, in a way, different results, certainly two different winners. We saw, uh, you know, Rins won the first race. It was Suzuki's first win of the season. And then we saw Morbidelli win the second one. And we saw the KTMs go a lot better. It was uh, one of those events where they made a big step in the second race. Um, the Ducatis didn't really do very well. You know, Dovi, remember, I think he had the, there was a bit of a meltdown with Petrucci in one of the qualifying sessions, wasn't there, where Petrucci followed him out and then ended up actually pushing him out of, of qualifying too. So, but that just illustrates that they, you know, how they were struggling there. So, you know, it's got the big straight, as, as Keith was saying, that you would expect would suit the Ducati, which it certainly does. But there's so many corners and it's such a challenging track. You know, there's a reverse corkscrew and all those kind of things that that it's a it's a real riders track i mean the riders the riders you know certainly all all love it it's got that mix that rare mix of being sort of old school challenging but you know modern safety and um yeah it's always a always a, always a popular event as, as he says not easy to say anywhere near it you know you're probably better off looking for an airbnb in, a, in one of the local villages and i think that you know that as far as the the surrounding countryside i think used to be for where they filmed spaghetti westerns is what i was always told and, and when you see it you can un- that that sums up what the landscape is like and so that gives you an idea yeah it really does feel oh, wow. like especially when you drive from barcelona you know if you drive from barcelona airport you're going right from the, the middle of this you know huge city into a place where they film spaghetti westerns back in the, the 60s and 70s or whatever so yeah that that's the kind of uh that's how far you are if you like from being in you know the metropolis of, yeah. uh, of barcelona it is also the aragon tech park of course where they refresh the 765 triumphs you know it's based on on aragon because it was originally as an and they were trying to make an employment center out of it as well i think that's why they got government help with the with the with the track they've done a really good job of it so trevor morris and the you know extern pro as 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 is uh the company that looks after all the moto 2 motors he's based at aragon on the tech park oh. whether that's got anything to do with um Spaghetti westerns and cowboys. <laughs> Is there a link there somewhere? <laughs> Sorry, Trev. <laughs> well, if that hasn't got you uh, excited for the weekend yet, I don't know what will. Uh, come on, then. Um, I know what will. Prediction time. Here we go. Keith and Pete are uh, are leading the way because I'm on two points and you're both tied for three. Um, so, with that in mind, uh, Keith, can I have your top three for this Sunday's Aragon Grand Prix, please? Mm. Quattararo, shock. Marquez, Mark Marquez, and Rins. Oh, okay, yeah. That's where I'm going. Yep. I don't I'm know why. I've got a feeling. I've got. I've got a bit of a Brad Binder feeling, but I've. Just, I've just kind of elbowed him out because. Because I have. I think the KTM. I think the KTM will be. I mean, Brad Binder has been brilliant on Moto Two and on the on the GP bike as well at Aragon. So I think Binder, if he makes the start, he'll be in the in the hunt. Um, his question mark always is his qualifying and um, getting through that first two corners. If you ain't qualified well, then first two corners at Aragon just kill you. Well, we'll uh, see how that pans out. I've written it down. It's uh, in concrete now. Pete? I'm going to give Rins a second chance. I went with him for Silverstone and, he, you know, in, in fairness, he, he did be proud. He nearly nearly got it, didn't he? So, you know, I think, you know, as I say, he won the first race last year and he's actually in a similar situation where to last year where he was out of the championship through injury early on. Now he's at the championship because of these earlier crashes, if you like. So he's, he's in the same situation. He's got no pressure. He, he can just go for it. It's a track we know he goes well at, like Silverstone. So I, I'm going to tip him to do what he did at Silverstone, but hopefully qualify better. And uh, yeah, I think he, I think he could, could well win again. Uh, and second, I'll go for Quattararo because Quattararo, I think, is 
you know, it's, it's a shock if he's not on the podium at any race, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, you know, he could well win it again. Um, a third, third, Marquez, you know, Marquez, it's, as Keith says, it's, he has his local, his, his fan club all come down, don't they? And it's, it's, although he's, it's like a home race for him, isn't it? And I think that he's going to be so fired up to go well there that, um, yeah, you know, he's not, he wasn't far off at Silverstone. And I think, yeah, you know, this, just that boost of being the home event and, and yeah, I think that he could be back on the podium. Fair enough. Well, I'm going to go for Quartararo uh, winning. And now I did write this down before Keith put his answer. I haven't gone identical for second place. I've gone for Jack Miller. I don't know. I just got a. I've got a feeling about Miller. I feel like he he had more in the bag at Silverstone, but just struggled. Um, and I feel like he, he'll get he'll do better this time around. And I'm going to go for Rins on the podium again. I think it's a, a beginning of a turnaround. So uh, Quartararo, Miller, and Rins for me. Uh, Keith Quartararo. Mark Marquez and Rins and Pete Rins, Cortuaro and Mark Marquez. Uh, let us know uh, what your predictions are in the uh, comments below and on Twitter. Send them in. Always good to see uh, who's uh, backing who. Um, well, not long uh, to wait until we find out who reigns supreme in Aragon. It all kicks off, of course, on Friday, 10th of September. We shall return with you uh, this time next week once more for more MotoGP chat. And you can keep up to date with all the very latest, of course, on Crash.net. Send all your questions queries comments complaints straight to keith and he'll answer them all for you uh, as soon as he can uh, and we'll chime in as well uh, just search crash moto gp uh, please do leave us a review as well only if it's good wherever you get your podcasts and we shall see you uh, right back here next week have a good one bye-bye here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.